It is all of grace, by grace and grace alone. That's what we get to glory in. That's why we gather. That's why we celebrate. We know that it's not based on human effort or our performance. It's based on God's grace alone. And so we're at level ground before the cross. We, we have no way to stand as higher or better than anyone else around us here at church or elsewhere uh, around the world. We are all in desperate need of grace. And what we've been doing the last uh, couple of Sundays is really seeing what happens when pride takes over and you feel that it is your human achievement. It is your human effort. We saw uh, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar saying that it was because of his power and for his glory that he did all the things that he did and God struck him down. He humiliated him. And uh, Lord willing, next Lord's Day in Daniel chapter 5, we will see another king pridefully elevate himself, mocking God, saying, I'm better than God. And God is going to utterly destroy that king. So we have a, a little bit of a detour. Last week, we looked at the foundation biblically of what pride is, why it's so destructive, why it's so devastating. And we're going to use this Lord's Day to look at humility and how we are to grow in humility. Last week, we looked at pride. We looked at the, the greatest danger that we face as a church individually, corporately, is pride. John Stott says, in fact, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, Pride is the greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. We asked three questions last Lord's Day about pride. We asked, what is pride? We defined it biblically. It's the, uh, the Greek word for proud or for prideful is to look down on others, to shine above others, to show oneself above others. So in relation to others, it's comparing them to you. You are the standard by which everyone else must be compared. For God, our pride shows itself in self-sufficiency, and independence. I'm good on my own. I don't need God. It's when sinful creatures aspire to the status and position of God, refusing to acknowledge their dependence on God. We asked, why is it so dangerous? We gave three reasons for why pride is so deadly and so dangerous. Number one, it's so self-deceiving. Number two, it causes comparisons. And number three, it takes so many different forms. We can be prideful in so many different ways. Then finally, we asked, how does God deal with prideful people? And we saw from 1 Peter chapter 5 that God is opposed to the proud. Literally, a, a Greek word that is taking up military arms against. God is taking up arms against you if you are prideful. Thomas Watson says it this way, the proud man is the mark which God shoots at, and he never misses his mark. So that was the foundation. But I will admit, once we ended last week, I really felt like we didn't get anywhere practical. Obviously, you can take the foundation of what we talked about last week and think about it practically and apply it practically. And Lord willing, that's exactly what you did. But we just, we set the stage for what we're gonna do, Lord willing, this morning. I want to look practically this morning. I want to apply those realities that we talked about foundationally last week and practically apply them to our lives this morning. And in doing so, we will go back to 1 Peter chapter 5 and see how Peter himself applies these realities. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 5 is where we are. And when you turn there, let's read together 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock 
of God among you, overseeing not under compulsion, but willingly, according to God, and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness. Not yet as lording it over those allotted to you, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and guard you and ground you. To him be might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we ask yet again that you by your grace, not according to our human effort, our human achievements, not because of our abilities, not because of anything that we could offer. We ask solely by your grace and your grace alone that you in your kindness would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. God, we need these verses to take root in our lives, to get the pride out of our hearts and to humble us to the ground. God, may we even live out these realities today, even as we fellowship with one another. May we live them out on the, the patio as we enjoy a picnic. May we live them out as we enjoy our small groups together. May we go home tonight and share these realities with one another and speak in our families, speak with our friends, open ourselves up to be confronted in this area and to be taught in this area. God, I pray that you would keep our eyes looking inward to ourselves in these moments, not to other people. But ultimately, Father, fix our eyes on Christ. We all fail in living out humility. So fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the most humble one. He is the example of pure humility. And we want to be like him and live out that humility with one another. Enable us to do that this day, we pray, for the glory of Christ our Savior. Amen. First Peter chapter 5 tells us the danger of pride, and we looked at that last week, but it also tells us the promise of humility. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I really want to ask two questions, and we'll dive into them together. Number one, what are the promises of humility? We looked at pride last week. What are the promises of humility? And number two, how do we practically pursue humility? So what are the promises of humility? And then how do we practically pursue them? And both of those headings have three points under them. So there are three ways that God has promised to deal with humble people. And there are three ways that Peter gives us in how to practically pursue humility. So three things that we'll look at under each. Number one, the promise of humility. What are, what are the promises that God gives? Well, you see one right here. Number one, promise number one, God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. This is in verse five. God is opposed to the proud, which we spent a lot of time last week looking at, but God gives grace to the humble. 
He's opposed to the proud, but he gives undeserved, unmerited favor to the humble. It's not like you being humble earns grace. It's you being desperate makes God say, I want, I want to help. I want to give. I want to support. I want to love. Humility is not an effort on your own that turns God towards you and makes God do something for you. That would be the opposite of what grace is. Instead, humility is just utter dependence, neediness. It's you going before the Lord saying, I have nothing. I am nothing. I need you because I can't do anything on my own. And guess what? God says, I will go to that person and give them everything. A.W. Pink says, grace is the favor of God to those who not only have no positive deservings of their own, but also who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. God only bestows grace on those people who are pleading for it. We said this last week, Spurgeon says, if we think that we can do anything on our own, God will give us the uh, allowance to try All we will get from God is the opportunity to try that, try it. If you think you can do it on your own without the need of God to jump in and help, God will say, go ahead and try. Luther says it is God's nature to make something out of nothing. That's why he cannot make anything out of him who is not yet nothing. So God gives grace to those who are humble. But humility itself is a gift. Humility is a gift. Humility is grace. John Piper says it this way, humility is the self-forgetful gift that receives all things as a gift. Humility is beyond our reach. If we were a product, if it were a product of reaching, we would instinctively be proud of reaching it. It's a gift of God alone. So even the humility with which to come before the Lord is a gift of God himself. The Greek word that Peter uses here of humility, clothe yourselves with humility, verse 5, God gives grace to the humble, uh, verse five. That word for humble is lowly-mindedness. Lowly-mindedness. We could define it this way. It's having a humble opinion of yourself, having a deep sense of your own moral littleness, or the way we talked about it last week, being completely and wonderfully unimpressed by who you are. That's what humility is. And without humility, we will never glorify the Lord the way that he's called us to. Augustine says it this way, for those who would like to learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, humility is the third thing. It's the opposite of esteeming yourself. And this kind of humility always accompanies saving faith. Matthew chapter five, blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt in heart, the desperate of soul. And they get everything, not because they have anything, but because God graciously gives them everything. Humility is a fruit of the spirit in In Galatians, humility is reaching out to the Lord saying, I have nothing, I can't offer anything. And God promises, promise number one, to give grace to those who do. Promise number two, he promises to exalt you. He promises to exalt the humble. This is the promise of exaltation. Verse six, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourselves and he will exalt you. So exaltation is a promise. If you stay humble, God says, I will exalt you. If you exalt yourself, God says, I will humble you. This is quoted in Matthew 23, verse 12, Luke 14, verse 11, Luke 18, 14, where Jesus says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted and whoever exalts himself will be humble. Another way we could say it is God's plan A for your life is you humble yourself 
God's plan B is he will humiliate you. If you choose not to humble yourself, God says, I'll do that for you. And he did it with Nebuchadnezzar and he will do it with us. Luke chapter one, verse 52, God has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who are humble. God exalts you, upholds you, lifts you up as you stay lowly minded and humble. Not only grace and exaltation, the first two promises of humility, but finally, number three, promise number three, God promises to support those who are humble, to support those. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66, verses one and two. Isaiah writes in chapter 66, verse one, that says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. Where then is a house that you could build for me? Look at how amazing I am. Look at how awesome I am. Where's a place that I may rest? My hand made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being. I'm the creator, you're the creature. That's what he's saying. And then he says this, but, so you can't offer me anything. You can't give me anything. You can't build me anything. You can't do anything for me. I'm the creator, you're the creature. But to this one, I will look. So it doesn't catch God's eye for you to say, I can do things for you. It doesn't catch God's eye for you to say, I have these gifts. I have these abilities. I'll do this for you. No, what catches God's eye is this. To this one, I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God is opposed to the proud and takes up arms against the proud, but he takes up arms to defend the humble, to support them. He will fight all of your battles. To this one, I will look. This reminds me of 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse nine. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support, same word, strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Humility captures God's attention. God hates pride and God is captivated by humility. Now, humility isn't commanded in this text. We see that, but it's divinely attractive in this text. God is passionately opposed to prideful people, but he's divinely attracted to the humble. There's so much more that could be said regarding the promises of humility, but for this morning, we will leave it there. The promises that God gives to those who are humble, he, he promises to give grace to those who are dependent, desperate, needy. He promises to exalt those who are lowly and humble. And he promises to strongly support those who would say, I have nothing and I am nothing. And God says, I will be your everything. But merely being educated about the perils of pride that we looked at last week and the promises of humility that we looked at this week won't cut it. There has to be specific application of the truth of God's word in our lives. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, that we are to make disciples, not by teaching all that God commanded, all that Jesus commanded, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. It's not that we are just gonna teach everything that God commanded, that's what we should be doing, but it's one step deeper than that, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. It's possible to admire humility while remaining prideful. Mere attendance on Sunday morning doesn't ensure life change is going to take place or that application will happen. In fact, mere attendance at church probably and potentially does more to damage your humility, to make you more puffed up if all you do is show up at church, gain more information and leave. Biblical knowledge comes to you as a brick 
with which to build the house of your life. But on that brick are the words, handle with care and make sure you apply to your life. So how do we intentionally apply this? Back in 1 Peter, Peter knows this. He gives us the foundation. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But we said last week, that's the hinge. And he gives three imperatives around that hinge. You remember chapter five, 1 Peter chapter five, verse five, he gives three imperatives. You younger men, be subject. There's imperative number one, be subject to your elders. All of you, imperative number two, clothe yourselves with humility because, here's the motivation, because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, verse six, imperative number three, humble yourselves. So if we were to ask Peter this morning, Peter, I know that pride is dangerous and deadly, and I know that humility is what we're striving for. How then are we supposed to pursue humility? I think he would give us these three answers right here. They're the hinge or they're attached to the hinge of that main proposition. And I believe that these are the three practical ways that we pursue humility today. So number one, we saw our promises of humility, grace, exaltation, and God supporting us. Number two, how do we practically pursue humility? Peter gives us three ways, and they are the three commands that we just read. Number one, how do we practically pursue humility? Number one, submit to human authority. Submit to human authority. Verse five, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. That word be subject to is a military term where you are voluntarily placing your will under the full command of someone else's will. Now, Peter singles out the younger men. Why the younger men? One author says this way, young people are by their very readiness for service and commitment, impatient with the leaders who either due to pastoral wisdom or the conservative nature that comes with age are not ready to move as quickly or as radically as they are. So there's an aspect of, hey, young people, you can chill out. You don't have to push so hard. You need to submit yourself to older people. And there is truth to that elsewhere in the scriptures. First Peter or First Timothy chapter five, verses one and two, uh, Paul says to Timothy, as a young pastor, don't treat older men with uh, any sense of contempt, confronting them like you would do a peer. No, rather treat them as a, a young son would entreat a father. Don't rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father. So I think that there's an aspect of what Peter's saying in 1 Peter chapter 5 of young people, submit yourself under older people. Yes, I think there's an aspect of that. And that's true elsewhere in the Bible that we should respect, honor our elders, amen and amen. But I think that Peter has something more specific on his mind because every time he has used the word elder in the book of 1 Peter, it always refers to the pastors and the elders of the church. So I think Peter's mainly thinking the way that the author of Hebrews thinks in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit yourself to them. So I think we could put it two ways. There's a practical application of this command of submit yourself, you younger men, all, uh, likewise be subject to your elders. I think number one, we should place a specific application. We should place ourselves under the authority of the elders and the pastors who give care to your souls. But I think the implication deeper than that is that if you want to start pursuing humility, you need to start by submitting yourself with joy to all of those who are over your life in authority. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your pastors or leaders. Maybe it's teachers and professors. I know that it's the president. I don't know if you want it to be the president, but I know that it's the president. Obviously, there's caveats, right? If 
people ask you to sin, of course we're not going to sin. We've even seen that in the book of Daniel. But don't let the caveats do away with the main point. What Peter's saying is, if you want to be humble and pursue humility, look around and see, are you characterized by joyful submission to those who are in authority over you? That's the question. Are you characterized by joyfully submitting to those who are in authority over you? Again, obviously, this command is not an allowance for elders to lord their authority over the flock. Peter just gave the elders and the pastors that instruction. Don't do this under compulsion, and don't do this for dishonest gain, and don't do it as those who are lording it over people. So if you ever get that sense from myself or from Sergio that we are lording some authority over you, we have erred, and you can call us on that. Can I just give you a phrase that would be a helpful phrase for you to know and call us out on? For us beginning the process of lording it over you, if we just say, as you bring questions to us, if we just say to you, just trust the elders, just trust us, trust the elders, trust your elders, just trust us. That's the first step in lording it over you. We know more than you, we're more involved than you, you don't have any right to ask us, and there's a separation instead of a coming together of saying, we need your help, we don't know anything. God has graciously given us authority in the church, but we don't know what we're doing. And we're pleading with the Lord to help us. And one of the main ways he helps us is you. We need you. The Westminster Larger Catechism asks the question, how do we submit to one another? How do we submit to authority over us? How do we joyfully submit to authority? And it says this, quote, show those over you respect in attitudes, words, actions, pray for them. Thank God for them. Imitate their virtues. Cheerfully obey their lawful commands. Willingly accept their correction. Be loyal to them. Have a forgiving spirit toward their sin and their weaknesses. Bring them honor by how you carry out your responsibilities. If you want to be a humble person, first ask the question, how joyfully do you submit to the leaders that are in your life, to the authorities that are in your life? And there are many different authorities. We all have them. How joyfully do you submit to those authorities that God has placed in your life. Number two, practical pursuit number two, become a slave of everyone. So yes, he's gonna narrow down younger people with elders, whether that's uh, younger in age to older people. I think there's an aspect of that that's true, but it's also uh, people in a church submitting to the elders and the pastors of the church. Secondly, if you're afraid of that narrowing down, if you think that's too specific, I think Peter would say, let's broaden it out. And he says it here in verse five, and all of you, and all of you, so no one's excluded from this one, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. That word clothe translates a very rare Greek word. It's actually used only here in the entire New Testament. And it refers to the tying on of the slave's apron, the apron of a slave. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Peter's probably thinking about the way Jesus tied the slave of an apron on himself in John 13 to wash the disciples' feet, to do what the Torah didn't even allow, the, the, the laws that um, the Pharisees had taken to themselves uh, around the Torah. They said that a rabbi was not allowed to ask their students to wash their feet. A rabbi, that was beneath the students to do that. If you as a teacher had students around you, you were not allowed to ask them or command them to wash your feet. And yet Jesus, the rabbi of rabbis, 
willingly does this on his own, washes his disciples' feet, even Judas, the one who's about to betray him. That's why I say, become a slave of everyone. If you want to practically pursue humility, we need to tie that apron slave on around everyone, with everyone, to everyone. You should be treating yourself as the slave and everyone around you as the person you're serving. How can I serve you? That's what we do. When we get out of our car this morning, when we get ready to go into church, we're getting out of our car and we're tying on that apron. I'm here to serve. I walk in, I see Luke, I'm here to serve. I see Sam, I'm here to serve. I see Tess, I'm here to serve. I see you, I'm here to serve. How can I serve? I'm not here for my own agenda. I'm not here for my own desires, my own wishes. And surely you're not here to serve me. I'm here to serve you. Just imagine what this would do to a church family if every Lord's Day we gather together with that apron on and we serve one another. Thomas Schreiner says it this way. I love this quote. Listen carefully. This quote is just amazing. Smooth relationships in the church can be preserved if the entire congregation adorns itself with humility. When believers recognize that they are creatures and sinners, they are less apt to be offended by others. Humility, I love the way he says this. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Pride gets upset when another does not follow our own suggestions. Think of that idea of an oil just being a, a lubricant to our relationships. Of course, we're sinners, so there's gonna be bumpy patches for sure and rough edges for sure. But if you have oil in your relationships of humility, when somebody does something that shows their rough edges, you're not gonna be offended because you're gonna say, I know I have my rough edges too. I know I have so many places in my life that are blind spots to me. And I will absolutely with grace receive your rough edges and graciously love you and despite them. Humility is essential for all spiritual service and ministry and unity. Humility is expressed through this godly unity that we would have at church. Imagine tying that, aprons, uh, that, that slave's apron on and serving one another. What does this look like in reality? Uh, you, you know the passage, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Selfishness is the pursuit of personal goals, personal agendas. Empty conceit is seeking personal glory, both of which are built on the foundation of pride. But Paul says in Philippians chapter two, no, instead regard one another as more important than yourself. That word regard is carefully examine the evidence and come to the verdict that others are more important than you are. It means that you serve everyone you're desiring to honor, respect, love, care for everyone, to be willing to be their slave. Husbands, is this your mindset of your spouse? Do you consider your wife as of more worth and greater honor than yourself? How about your kids? What would they say? Would they say that they're treated with honor and respect and kindness? How about your boss? How about those in human authority over you? Peter says, if we are to practically pursue humility, we must first, number one, joyfully submit to all human authority around us. And then number two, become a slave of everyone. Serve everyone. Finally, number three, the third imperative that he gives us in verse six. If we are to pursue humility, we must embrace, joyfully embrace God's providence 
and our circumstances. Joyfully embrace God's sovereignty over every circumstance. He says in verse six, therefore, because God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourself, make yourself low, bow before him. He is sovereign, we are not. Accept the fact that he is sovereign and we are not. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. We struggle with pride when we aren't seeing God in his fullness and his majesty and his glory and his power. Peter says, we must humble ourselves under his mighty hand, knowing he will exalt us at the proper time. He will lift us up. He will exalt us at the proper time. The ultimate fulfillment of that promise of exaltation at the proper time is heaven. It might happen in little bits and pieces here on earth, but it's heaven when God finally exalts us to a place of being with him forever in all of eternity in heaven. But it's the proper time. I love that. It's not our timing. It's God's timing. We don't get it when we want it. We get it when God says it's best. We say a lot at CBC, uh, God's never late, but he's hardly ever early. Amen and amen that God in his grace, he's never late. He will make this happen, but he's hardly ever early. And he brings you to a place where you are at the end of yourself crying out in desperation. And God says, I will exalt you. But if humbling ourselves before God is so important as Peter says it is, how can we know we're doing it? And I love what Peter says here. It's in verse seven, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him. That word casting, that's a participle ing word that modifies the main verb that's found in verse six. Humble yourself. How do you do that? By casting. That's the word here, casting. This is one of the greatest litmus tests of our humility before God. How often do you go before him and you pray and you give your cares to him versus how often you hold them to yourself with anxiety and worry? Spurgeon asks this question, do you find yourself to be an anxious man? I tell you, friend, that you are found out to be a prideful man. If we in our anxiety take all of the burden on ourselves, we are proving that we are prideful people. That's why we said last week, pride is so strange. It takes so many forms. The overly anxious, worried uh, person with so many concerns and cares, we might look at them and think that they are incredibly humble because they don't have it all together and they don't have uh, the ability to fix these situations and look at how absolutely uh, nervous they are about what's happening in their lives. But Peter says, actually, that nervousness, that anxiety, that worry, those cares that are not given to the Lord, that's not proof of humility, that's proof of pride. The word casting is used in two places in the New Testament. Here, and then Luke 19 with the triumphal entry where the followers of Jesus were throwing or casting their coats in the middle of the road. It means throwing something. Don't take your anxiety and graciously place it onto Jesus. Throw it away from you and throw it onto the, to the Lord who loves you. This is actually a quotation of Psalm 55, verse two. Cast your cares upon the Lord and he will sustain you. 
That Hebrew word in Psalm 55 for cast is the word roll up. It, it, it would be um, if you have a wagon and you need to put something heavy into the wagon that a horse is going to carry or a donkey is going to carry, you have a little ramp that would attach from the, the back of that wagon all the way down, down to the ground, and you'd roll up whatever that thing was and put it onto the wagon. And so what Peter is saying, what he's doing is he's using that imagery, is he's saying, take your burdens, take your cares, take your anxieties, whatever's worrying you, bring it to the wagon of God's providence and sovereignty, put that ramp there and roll it on up, give it to him and go like this and let him take it far away. How do you do that? That's prayer. We must throw onto Christ through our prayers, all of our burdens, all of anxieties, all of our cares. And notice the command is not just do this, just do it. Here's a motivation given. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Literally, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Cast all of your burdens on him because he's burdened for you. He loves you. D. Edmund Hebert says it this way, all that creates anxiety for us, whether momentous or trivial, is a matter of concern to him. Your heavenly father loves you. He knows that anxiety. Even if you don't pray and ask him, he still knows what it is. And he wants to hold it for you. He wants to wear that burden and carry it for you. If you want a simple test of your humility before God, just ask yourself this simple question. What do I cast on God in prayer? And what do I decide that I can do, my, do myself on my own? One author says it like this. Prayerlessness is the believer's declaration of independence. Prayerlessness is the believer's declaration of independence. It is in prayer that we show that our dependence is truly on God and not in ourselves. So humility, as Thomas Schreiner says, manifests itself in handing over our worries to God, and hence it follows that worry is a form of pride. Worry constitutes pride since it denies the care of a sovereign God. The antidote to worry is believing in and resting in God's care for believers. So if we are to practically pursue humility, Peter gives us three specific commands. Number one, joyfully submit to human authority over you. Number two, joyfully serve and be a slave to everyone around you. Tie on that slave's apron around you and serve. And finally, number three, joyfully embrace the sovereign providence of God, his loving care over your life. Those are the three commands that Peter gives. And those are practical, yes. And I think we should be talking about that as we enjoy sweet fellowship today at our picnic. But I want to go one step deeper. And I want to ask this question and be as practical as I possibly can be. How do we start doing this today? How do we start practically? What steps do we practically take to pursue humility today? There are 12 that I have. We'll go through some very quickly. Maybe we won't get through all of them. Number one. Each day, every day, meditate on the cross. If you want to practically pursue humility, if you want to live out the commands that Peter's given, if you want to humble yourself under the Lord's mighty hand, meditate on the cross. 
Think deeply about the cross. Grab a book like the Gospel Primer and read it every day in your devotions to take you back to the cross every day. How can anyone be arrogant when they stand beside the cross? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, I am told to esteem others better than myself. There's only one thing that can make me do that. There's only one thing I know that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. When I see that I am a sinner and that nothing but the son of God on the cross can save me, I am humbled to the dust. And I say that no one can be worse than I am. I am the chief of sinners and anyone must be better than I am. Nothing but the cross of Christ can give us that spirit of humility. Number two, study the attributes of God. Study God's attributes. Even Peter does this under the mighty hand of God, under God's mighty hand. Look at his might and his power. Study the attributes of God. Study those attributes that we would uh, categorize as incommunicable, the ones that he doesn't share with humanity. God is infinite and independent. He's fully present all the time, everywhere. I can be in one place only at one time only. And even then, I'm not really all there, right? Like I'm not fully there. God is fully present everywhere. We say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God says, I am that I am. Study the attributes of God. That will make you feel very small. Number three, study the doctrines of grace. Study the doctrines of grace. God's sovereignty and salvation to do the work, to get you, to come after you, to chase you down. To be theologically informed about your salvation and to be personally proud is a profound contradiction. These doctrines humble us to the dust. There should be a discernible humility in our communication with one another, knowing how God saved us. Number four, study the doctrine of sin. Study the doctrine of sin. John Owen, who is probably the best at helping us study the doctrine of sin, wrote, two things are needed to humble us. First, let's consider God and his greatness, glory, holiness, power, majesty, and authority. Then let us consider ourselves in our mean, abject, and sinful condition. Study the doctrine of sin. Apply it practically to yourself. Here's how you know you are practically applying the doctrine of sin to your own life. How regularly do you confess sin? How often do you go before other people and ask them to forgive you? I believe that we should be doing that daily because we are sinning daily. So we should be going so often to one another saying, please forgive me, I, I sinned. I messed up, I didn't do that correctly, please forgive me. If you confess sin irregularly and unspecifically, it shows pride in your heart. John Flavel says, they that know God will be humbled and they that know themselves could never be proud. Study the doctrine of sin. Number five, invite and pursue correction. Invite and pursue correction. If you know the doctrine of sin, you are going to invite and pursue correction. When you read the Proverbs, there's always a relationship there between wisdom and correction. If you are corrected, you will become wise. So you wanna grow in wisdom to help others and to be more like Christ. John Calvin said that theologians are probably right in their views of the Bible about 80% of the time. We're probably right about 80% of the time. And that's John Calvin. 
So if John Calvin says he's right 80% of the time, what are we, probably 25% of the time? There's no way we could be arrogant in our understanding of the Bible. We're average at best. Therefore, it's absolutely unacceptable to be arrogant. So go to other people and ask them. Please help me. Show me where I'm wrong. What have I done recently that would be something that's that rough edge that needs to be taken off? Would your wife, your children, your husband, leaders in the church, would they say that you're easy to correct? Would they say that they usually encounter stubbornness or pushback or defensiveness in you when they bring up an issue to you? I've said this before. Husbands, you should go to your wives today and you should ask, if you knew that I wouldn't respond in defensiveness and anger, what's one thing that I need to work on that you would like to tell me? Brothers, she will respond. <laughs> she has a list. It's not one thing. <laughs> There's a list. Go to her in humility. Ask, where do I need to grow in serving and leading our kids? Where do I need to grow in serving the church? If you're truly serious about mortifying pride and sin in your life, can I just ask, what would stop you from asking those questions? What would stop you from asking honestly, intentionally, and expectantly, how can I grow and change? Go to somebody today. If you're not married, you can go to somebody, go to a friend, go to somebody who knows you at church, and ask, where have you seen pride most evident in my life? Ask, am I easy to entreat? Am I easy to approach and to correct? Or are you fearful in doing that? Ask your kids. I ask my kids all the time, hey, how could I be a better dad? What's something I could do to be a better dad? We were talking the other day. We had this uh, really fun family date. We were talking about character traits that we get and personality traits and quirks that we get from each other. And I said, Ethan, if you, what's one thing that you really want to get from me? And what's one thing that you really don't want to get from me? He said, he really wants, this is honest truth, he really wants my ability to be able to go long periods of time without eating, what he said. And then I, I said, cool, maybe. Uh, what's one thing that you really don't want to get from me? And he goes, I really don't want to get how much you talk. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, that's fair. Number one, that's kind of my job. Uh, number two, yes. Uh, why don't you talk more, Ethan? Um, we went around the table. We had a blast. It's, it's so helpful to do that. So dads, do that with your kids. Serve them. Put on that apron around them and serve them. Number six, recognize your relative unimportance. If you want to pursue humility, recognize your relative unimportance. I know we don't like to think this, but it's true. No one is indispensable. No one's indispensable. In fact, the reality is, whatever you think you are needed for, in a hundred years, you will be replaced in. Right? We are all more unimportant than we think we are. Number seven, do things that intentionally promote your humiliation. For me, that's any form of sport, especially if you do it with our brother Bob Kern, right? He will, he will make sure to point out where you are failing <laughs> and help you. Jeremiah can attest to that. Do things, have you noticed 
we, we all do this because this is human nature. We tend to stay away from things we're not good at, and we tend to only do the things that we are good at. Flip that around. If you're already good at something, God's given you the ability and the talent, awesome. Do something you're bad at so that you can remember, I'm not God's gift to the world, and I'm humiliated, and I need to grow. Number eight, wake up every morning acknowledging your dependence on God. Wake up every morning before you get out of bed. Here's, here's the way I do that every morning. This is my, the first word that comes to my mind every morning, other than, ugh. The, the second word that comes to my mind is help. Literally every morning as I'm rolling over thinking there's no way it's already another day, and I roll over, my first word is help. God, I can't do this help. Declare war on your pride by crying out to God for help. Number nine, have daily devotions. Have devotions with the Lord, and in doing that, express gratitude every day. Give gratitude to the Lord and dependence to the Lord every day. With with expressing gratitude, you're killing pride. John Stott says it this way, thankfulness is the soil in which pride does not easily grow. An ungrateful person is a proud person. We're all receiving far more than we deserve. So after waking up and saying, help, next say, God, thanks. Thanks. Number 10, practice the spiritual disciplines every day. If you don't practice them, you are giving an evidence of self-sufficiency. You don't need God, so you're doing it on your own. Pray throughout the day. Cast your cares on the Lord throughout the day. Number 11, at the end of the day, transfer glory that you've received to God transfer glory that you've received. Any praise, any accolades that you've been given, go through them. At the end of the day, go back through them and give them to the Lord. Thomas Watson says, when we have done anything praiseworthy, we must hide ourselves under the veil of humility and transfer the glory of all that we have done to God. Pride is cosmic plagiarism, right? It's saying, I did these things when it's actually God who did them. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 12, the Author writes, you have done for us. God, you have done for us all of our works. You have done for us all of our works. Finally, number 12, take advantage of your sleep. Enjoy sleep knowing that you are a creature dependent on your creator. He's not sleeping, you and I are. There's more that we could give here. And that list comes from uh, a few different sources, but mainly from a very helpful little book called Humility by C.J. Mahaney. So you could go to that book. You could see other things that he talks about as he goes through lists of how to practically go through and, and apply uh, humility in our lives. We need to do it, though. We need to practically pursue living out, chasing down humility. So we saw last week the devastating perils of pride. This week we've seen the promises of humility, namely that God will give you grace, exalt you, and support you. We've seen Peter's imperatives to practically pursue humility, submitting yourself joyfully to every human authority, becoming a slave of everyone, and embracing God's providence in your life. And then we've gone through just very practical ways of living that out, attempting to do that practically. Pick one of those 12 things and do it today. The bottom line, though, is Perfect humility, living that out in perfection, obviously is impossible because we've, we've already broken it. We've already been prideful. And that should take us back to the cross. That should make us thankful for Jesus. He submitted perfectly to his father and to every other human authority. He became a slave of all. He said, not my will, but yours be done. 
He joyfully embraced God's providence, his father's providence in his life. So go to the cross. That's where we should always wind up when we're thinking about these things. Yes, look inside, see your pride for as ugly as it is, see your lack of humility and try to think through ways that you can pursue humility, yes. But for every one look that you look inside, every, every one look that you take inside of yourself to see your sinfulness, take 12 looking at Jesus. When we are tempted to despair and reminded of our guilt within, what does the song say? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all our sin. John Stott says, far from offering us flattery, the cross undermines our self-righteousness. We can stand before it only with a bowed head and a broken spirit. D.A. Carson says, how can anyone be arrogant when you stand next to the cross? John Stott says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing. It is your curse I am suffering. It is your debt I am paying. It is your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe at all cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Brothers and sisters, we have the privilege of doing that today, together as a church family, visiting a place called Calvary and letting these elements shrink us down to our true size and give us confident hope and assurance of the future. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, your love, your kindness. We don't deserve it, even as we began this morning by looking at you give grace to those who are undeserving. They're utterly humiliated. They're desperate and in need for help and they can do nothing on their own and they come to you and they say, help. And sure enough, you gladly do. So nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Where our sin was done away with. Every single sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. May the cross shrink us down to our true size, that we are more sinful than we could possibly imagine. We are way worse than we think we are. And then may it give us confident assurance for the future, knowing that we are way more loved than we could begin to fathom. At the cross, may we shrink and then may we grow with confident assurance of your love. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.